Well, this is Travis Roeder with Our Daily Bears. Uh, I have a very uh, special treat for everyone here today. That's, um, that's, do- that's, that's pushing it. Like, let's be clear. A special treat <laughs> is pushing it. Well, it just kind of depends on what you're into. And there's a few other football freaks out there like us, Jeff. So, <laughs> so yeah, I'm here with Jeff Davis. Uh, you can find him at Penland365 on Twitter. Um, Jeff is a guy that I've known for a few years now, and he's just one of those dudes that if you talk enough ball with, he clearly kind of demonstrates his competence, and you realize that you should listen to what he has to say. Not because he's always right. Uh, I don't know if he's right about his 70-3 to prediction for Baylor beating Iowa State this week. Just kidding. Um, but he's a guy that I know what he's talking about because he's been uh, he's cared about football for a long time. Um, and so I wanted to talk with Jeff about this Baylor-Iowa State game coming up. And the purpose of this podcast is really to kind of do a really deep dive on the game. Not necessarily that we know exactly like every single player's strengths and weaknesses or every single scheme that's going to be used, but really trying to think about it like in a more granular way. And I don't think you're going to find a deeper dive on this game or on the Baylor football team anywhere else. Uh, so without further ado, I'll introduce Jeff. Like I said, you can find him at Penland365 on Twitter. Jeff, uh, why should people care what you have to say about football? Well, the honest answer is they probably shouldn't. Um, that probably, I mean, not to like completely kill the podcast, but, um, you know, I I guess to, to expand on that a little bit more, um, why, like, I, I make that comment because the reason I got into football, I think, is, is a little different than, than, than other people um, or why I started to take a real deep dive. So, uh, you know, I've, I've always loved football. I've loved it since I was a little kid. And I, I, I was, I was kind of in that mode of, you know, you want to know more, you want to know more, you want to know more. But, you know, it pre-internet days, and I'm dating myself in a very major way here for everyone under the age of like 70 years old that's listening to this. <laughs> but, you know, before the World Wide Web, there were not a lot of options if you wanted to actually learn ball. Um, you had to basically do two things. You either had to go be a graduate assistant at a college that had a good coaching staff, because if you went and you were a grad assistant at a college at, at a place that had a bad staff, you were screwed. Um, or you went and tried to get on with a certain um, high school high school team. And those were the only two real ways to make a name for yourself in ball at the beginning because so much of what you learned as a coach really came out of the systems that you were in. Um, and then about 10 years ago, uh, there was this thing that was invented or actually purchased. Y'all may have heard of it called YouTube. And uh, YouTube really changed my love for the game. And I say that because unlike, you know, I'm not I'm not in football for and I'm going to make I'll just this is just a little bit of a smart ass comment. But, you know, I'm not in football because I want to be one of the um, one of the scheme guys. And I think anyone listening to this podcast knows the type of individual I'm talking about. It's the person that, you know, they, they've got a little gif, Jeff, whatever the correct pronunciation is. I'm, I'm a programmer. I still don't know what the correct pronunciation is. Um, <laughs> but, you know. They've got one of those they tweeted out, and they make some snide comment that's like football jargonese around like, oh, this was ripless, this was never going to work, or oh, this was cover three, I don't know why they didn't try to do four verts, and you know, there's a lot of trying to, trying to, trying to sound like what you know what you're talking about when you know really you know a little bit but you don't know a lot, um, and for me that's not the but for me that's really not the interesting part of, of football. Um, football to me is this beautiful meld of players and coaching staff and scheme that really kind of blends together in that in a way that I don't think any other sport in the world really does. I mean, F1 is honestly like the only other sport I can think of that comes close in that it's a genuine team game and first and foremost, organizations win titles. All right, believe it or not, Nick Saban does not win a title. 
you know, none of his players win titles. The University of Alabama doesn't win titles. The organization that Nick Saban has built along with those players and along with those coaching staff, that's what wins titles, okay? And that's the same thing for whether it's Baylor, whether you're in a high school, whether you're University of Texas, whether you're USC, whether you're Carolina, New England, I mean, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, uh, Bill Walsh had a very, had a great comment. I mean, this is very much dating myself, but Bill Walsh, who was the head coach for the 49ers in the 80s, had a great comment one time, and he said, you know, we're not really competing against 28 other teams. We're competing against six other teams. That's who we're competing against. We're competing against the six other organizations that know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so football is very much an organizational game. And so my interest to bring this all the way back around, when I got into watching stuff on YouTube, it was really to watch coaches teach me about techniques. So, you know, you can go online on YouTube right now and you can watch Nick Saban talk about um, the proper way for uh, DBs to handle certain crossing routes and certain coverages for 60 minutes. You can go watch Nick. Uh, you can go watch Nick Saban, or you can go watch, um, you know, lots of other guys. Names are escaping me off the top of my head, but you know, there are other guys that you can go. Dave Aranda. Like, yeah, Dave Aranda. Thank you. Like Dave Aranda, talk about linebacker technique or um, what makes a good two gapper. I mean, that that information is there, and it's kind of funny because when you watch them, they're usually videos of like these elite coaches standing in like. A, a middle school classroom next to a chalkboard because that's who's hosting this event and they're just up on the chalkboard diagramming stuff for hours um, but learning about how that technique really melded with players was the fascinating part of it for me and so it, talking about a that's the narrative part that I love so much about football. So figuring out how that journey evolves, how a player gets so much better um, through just technique um, or better coaching or a scheme fit or whatever that is, situation matters so much in football. And we really, as fans, we really underrate it because we just think of these guys as like EPA numbers that you plug in. You know, yeah. this guy's a plus whatever on this play, so he's going to be good. Well, that's not really how it works. But, yeah, the understanding the context and the story is what really drives me and why I love football so much. Well, I, th I think that's, that's really interesting because I think a lot of fans try and enter the game through different ways. Like, for a while there, I was really into advanced stats, and I liked them because they provided a lot of context to a game to me that I didn't understand on a granular level. And I felt like the game was so detailed that it was impossible for me to ever learn enough to know anything. Mm -hmm. And I think we've all seen, too, that you know, we can have really good NFL players that become commentators. Some of them, like Tony Romo, are obviously incredibly smart, especially at the quarterback position. You really have to know the game. But you can meet other players that you're like, wait, it doesn't even really sound like you know that much about football. And yeah. I think that's almost kind of a point of, like, it's so organizational and no one player. Everybody's kind of doing their own job, and it adds up to this total, this total product, which is the team. Yes. Um, and there's not really – you can't really just become an – you can become an expert at one level and do your one job really well, but if you hone in on one aspect of anything, you're not going to be able to understand the sport as a whole. Yeah, I think, and I think that's a great way to put it. You know, on the stats side of it, I, I, I get, you know, I get pushback from some people that I talk to about football because I, I, I do a lot of, um, I guess, machine learning is probably the best way to put it for everyone out there. I've done, I have written a good deal of that, and I am very probably skeptical is the best way to put it of most um, football advanced stats I there's certainly there I mean, this is not to say there's not value there and this isn't to like trash on any advanced stats people but I have not I, I am not very comfortable with most of the advanced stats that are used as a way of signifying this unique metric outside of an additional context and if you don't know that context so much of that is 
a little meaningless. And I'll, and I and I'll say this, you know, it's a Baylor. This is a good example. Like PFF has Baylor's offensive line is like. I don't know, the greatest offensive line of the last five years or something right now. I, as a Baylor fan, that's great. I'll also tell you as someone that loves football, like, that's nonsense on stills. Like, they do not have the best offensive line in the last five years. And hopefully, you know, there aren't any offensive linemen that hear this or their parents and get mad at me about that. Um, I would love to be proven wrong over the course of the next, you know, three months. But... You know, it's extremely likely that they do not have the greatest offensive line of all time. You need to know additional context around who they're playing, what the schemes are they're being asked to do, why they look so good executing this particular zone blocking scheme, which is something we'll talk about later, I'm sure. Um, you know, all of that context is required to consume that stat because what that stat is really telling you is, hey, they're a lot better this year, and that's awesome. Like, and but it had to be. It doesn't have to be more than that. Like, yes. it doesn't need to be a that. Like, they're a lot better. That's awesome. That's exciting. Like that's what that stat should tell. Yeah, you. I mean, so, what I said, what what I said on the our daily podcast was, it's really good at kind of almost kind of proving a negative. If you're rated number one in the nation, it means you're probably not last. But yeah. you know, it, it, it's 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 on a kind of graded curve there. So, so this is all really good. Uh, I think Jeff, you and I could talk about this for a long time. Um, the the more outer themes of football and why we love the game so much. But I think the people are amped for Saturday. And I want to make sure we don't get too astray from talking about the game. There is one thing I think that we need to talk about before we can talk about Baylor-Iowa State. And that's Baylor in 2020, and specifically Baylor's offense in 2020. Yeah. The offense has been great this year. Uh, you know, we, all, think, uh, we think. We think. Well, I'm, I'm, no, I'm going to caution you on that. We think well, it's been great. Well, I, I want to say it has been great in the sense of they've done what they needed to do in the first three games. That's right? that's one hundred percent correct. Yeah, yes. not not necessarily absolutely. saying whether yeah. what's going to happen in the future, but um, absolutely yes. You're uh, right. And it's I think what's been so fun to me is like I think even the average fan, if you just watch the game for thirty seconds, you can watch you can watch three consecutive plays of this offense run, and I think even an average fan can understand that it's coherent. Uh, it's cohesive. It makes sense. There f- it feels like they're building on things. So why was it not that way in 2020? Why was the Baylor offense in 2020 so bad? And I guess then you can transition into, you know, what's improved for 2021. I know, huge question, but give it, give yeah. it a question. <laughs> uh, not a problem. So um, I, I think before I actually answer that question, it's important to make to, to state out loud how bad it actually is. Because my wife was talking to me about this, asked me this question, um, uh, either bef- uh, during the Kansas game or may have been the week prior, I can't remember. And she said, you know, they, they, they look a lot better. Why were they so bad last year? And I think that, you know, as fans, we kind of have this idea of like, something's either super awesome or super terrible. But of course, that's not true. There's this wide, in most cases, there's this wide range of you're the median, you're within a standard deviation of the median, you're good, you're okay. Like those are all appropriate adjectives to use in a lot of, in a lot of contexts. Um, and to rewind slightly, if you go back and look at 2019, Baylor's offense was pretty good. And that surprises a lot of fans because the offensive line was so young and, um, uh, the quarterback had his share of injury struggles, and they were cons- really they were constrained play. in so many ways too. Yeah, they were constrained in so many ways. But you know, they had a they had an offense that was at least one standard deviation over the median. I mean, like they were in the thirties to forties, and I, I I don't think most fans realize that. Um, but last year, of course, was very very different, and they were they weren't just bad; they were catastrophically bad, and in some areas, they were. Like, not catastrophically bad. They were so bad that you can't really call what they were doing 
an offense in any way, shape, or form. And, uh, <laughs> they had, and I, I, I can think of two specific stretches that really, really proved this out. The first one for any fan that remembers would have been TCU of last year, particularly in the first half. And I mean, the numbers, I don't have them in front of me, but the last time I looked, it was something atrocious of like, seven possessions and 41 yards. In Didn't they gain one first down, and I think it was due to a penalty? Yeah. I think that's what it was. Yeah, I think that's correct. It's like one first down and 40-something yards. And that's like to have an offense that bad is like it's almost not possible. Like right. You could take – you. And this, this is really not an exaggeration. You could take Mary Harden Baylor and – Put them and Mary Harden Baylor has a great team for for those of you that don't pay a lot of attention to that division. Mary Harden has a probably the best overall team pound for pound in the state of Texas. So I'm gonna I'll rep them right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you you know if you took Mary Harden Baylor and you put them out for seven possessions against Alabama, they're probably gonna do better than that. And that's that's the honest to God truth. Like they are going to do better against Alabama's defense over that same time frame. So you know that was one stretch. Another one was the second half of Iowa State, which we'll talk more about that later. But second half of Iowa State last year was an abomination, and there's no other way to put that. It was just it was so bad that it wasn't coherent. And you know at a certain point, kids' effort level drops because they know that what they're doing just doesn't work, and it all kind of just falls apart. And they had a couple stretches like that where you can honestly just say it all fell apart last year. Um, and so you don't you don't get fall offs that dramatic uh, without a systematic failure. You know, there's not like it's not like the offense, you know, got hit by a meteor and we were running out. <laughs> me and you out there to play. You know, it's kids that were that are talented, like same talent level as 2019, same talent level we're seeing this year in a lot of places. Um, there was, I think there are four areas where there was a real, there was a real issue. The first one, and not to get into too detail with this, but the first one I think is coaching cohesion. Um, for the average fan, I don't think that most fans have a good understanding of how important coaching cohesion is to kids in the room. Whether you're doing, you know, peewee football or P5 football or you are in the NFL. I mean, this is um, kind of like the thing of you don't want dad and mom saying different things to the yeah, kids, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I think that's actually a good way to put it. You know, like you can't you can't be in the room and have coaches like sniping at each other in front of the kids. Like that just doesn't work. Okay, um, there was a massive level of dysfunction, interpersonal dysfunction on the offensive staff last year, and I think a lot of that was exacerbated by COVID and the impossible conditions they got started in. Um, and not to go too far down that rabbit hole, but that that was there, and that absolutely contributed and anyone that doesn't think that that contributed just doesn't understand again we'll go back to the organizational aspect like it's an organization if part of your organization is fighting constantly you're not going to get a good product out of that particular part of it and that was probably exacerbated too i don't want to really speculate but it, it feels fair to assume that dave dave being a, a defensive head coach probably had a harder time when dysfunction was going on, you know, feeling like he was comfortable kind of commanding an offensive room versus a defensive room, right? I so I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to put a maybe on that one. I, I do think I, I think to be clear, I'm really putting a maybe on it too. I was yeah. just thinking of Yeah, I, I will say in in reference to Dave Aranda, um <laughs> I don't I don't know if I can remember a more difficult position for a first-year head coach to right. get into. Because it just, there were three things he had really going against him. The first and foremost of which, and this is this is so rare that people don't really understand it. You know, when a new coach comes in, it's almost always because the old coach sucked. 
most coaches don't leave because they were so awesome they went to the NFL. Right. That never happens. Right. So, you know, if you're Dave Aranda and you're known in the coaching community as this defensive savant, and that's not an, that's not an unwarranted title, okay? I mean, he is that good defensively. But, you know, you, you've literally come off of winning. You won a title at LSU. You are respected as perhaps the preeminent or one of the three preeminent defensive minds in all of football. Again, not an exaggeration. And then you walk into the team meeting – and no one on the team thinks you're as good as the guy that just walked out of the room mm, a week ago. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, I mean that is hard. Um, and that's not a negative against the kids. Like you know, if you're, I, you know, if you're a college, if you're a college athlete, you want to play in, you want to play in the NFL. And they spent the, that team spent three years listening to Matt Rule tell them, if you do X Y Z, you're going to go to the league because I know how to get to the league. And after three years. Guess what? Matt Rule went to the league, so they're coming off an eleven and three season, um, in which if they had gotten better quarterback play, they would have been in the playoffs. And I think a lot of that is injuries, but that's just a statement. Um, and that team was a playoff caliber team, and the head coach and the most of the coaching staff is a NFL quality coaching staff. And you transition into Dave Aranda, and that's not a down statement, like to put him down. That's just a statement that Dave Aranda could be a great coach. But he's not an NFL. Coach. He had to earn it, and so he's got to earn it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just think about like almost like as a. I don't want to compare the players to kids, but like you know, when you're a kid, whatever you're used to is like the greatest thing in the world, right? And and yeah. and, and in some sense, like college athletes, they're totally absorbed in that organization. They're totally absorbed with their school. They're totally absorbed with their head coach, and so what they know, they know, and anything outside of yeah. that is tough. Yeah, I, I, you're 100 percent right on that. I think. Um, so yeah, you combine you combine that as like coming in as a difficult spot, and then you have COVID, which I, I like to be a first year head coach and implementing a new scheme under COVID is it's it's an impossible yeah. task. I mean, it's just an yeah. impossible task. And you know, as much I, I export I expressed a lot of frustration to you and to a few other people about um, some of the coaching staff on the previous um, offensive staff. I'll be very clear on that on the previous um, offensive uh, offensive regime. Um, but with that being said, it was still an impossible situation, and you can't you can't discount that. Um, and then the final part of that, that, well, two more parts of that that I do want to add on to is they to separate out, um, you know, the, the coaching really was the coaching really struggled, particularly I think on offensive a little bit on offensive line, I think particularly at wide receiver. Um, they just kids did not look well coached at wide receiver, and to be very to be very blunt and very direct, there's a reason that coach was an analyst when he came to Baylor and there's a reason when he got done he went right back to being an analyst and we don't have to talk too much more about that but I think that was right. just a bad hire and to credit to Dave Aranda like that got fixed ASAP um, and then you know but yeah the co the coaching just was not as good as it, as it had been under the previous regime or I think in a lot of ways is now um, and then from a schematic perspective the two things really stood out the first one um, the first one is and I think we probably get it we got to have this conversation I know we're like 19 minutes into this. You're good. You're good. Like we got, we got to have a little bit of the Charlie Brewer conversation because you can't talk about why they were so bad last year without having an honest conversation about Charlie Brewer. And, you know, there's the news this week that he um, has left the university of Utah um, without trying to be, you know, I'll just leave it at that. 
Um, he has, we don't know where he's going. We wish him the best of luck, at least I, I personally do, wherever he is going or whatever he plans to do. Um, but if you go and you look specifically at 2020, that offense was atrociously designed to suit his needs. Yes. Uh, and that's, well, the previous staff just, had basically two or three years to, to learn what he could do and what he couldn't do and then design a championship caliber offense around him. This new staff yes. didn't. They didn't. They, they didn't they, yeah, they didn't. And to go back to the COVID part, you know, one of the things that we don't know for certain is to say, what if they had seen him for four weeks in the spring? What if they had seen him with an offensive line room that wasn't falling over due to COVID for the first two months of the season last year, you know, would they have made different choices? I, I, you know, that, that's just an unanswerable question, but the, you know, the reality is what we saw in the field and what we saw in the field was a really poorly designed offense. Um, I, I think that a lot of fans focused on his arm talent and his arm talent is, is certainly not great, but I, the reason why that offense last year was so poorly suited him had nothing to do with his arm talent. Um, I mean that there was a little bit of that issue there, but it was not the primary reason. Um, if you if if you go back and look at their at how they won in 2018 and how they won in 2019, you know Matt Rule and Jeff Nixon, the previous offensive coordinator, they figured out who they had pretty quickly. And what they had was they had a guy that could make one read, and then he wanted to play um, street yeah. ball. And I don't mean that in a negative connotation. That's that's what he wanted to do. He was going to make a read, and if it wasn't there, he was going to pull it down, and we got to go into scramble drill mode. So if you go back and look at any big third down or play they had to have in 2018 or 2019, whether that's, I mean, Denzel Mims in 2018 against OSU. Um, T- against TCU more, in 2019 when, in overtime. Yeah. In overtime, yeah. Yeah, 2019. Or Fleeks before that, yeah, where it's yeah. the same thing. Uh, uh, in 2018, you know, every third down conversion under him was basically Jalen Hurd on a jerk route mm. in the slot, like beasting on some poor DB to get open on a man coverage route. You know, they, they found, they got these NFL talent wide receivers, and Jalen Hurd and Denzel Mims are NFL quality wide receivers, and they just let these dudes just moss some poor DB, and they would make catch after catch after catch. I mean, I, my favorite catch that, that Denzel Mims made, he had, I think it was against Texas Tech on that game-winning drive, where he, I mean, he caught the ball over his head by about three feet rotated his body at about a 45 degree oh, angle yeah. and had a double toe yeah, tap yeah. on like a third and 16 or something stupid like yeah that. they hit him in between the, just, in between the corner and safety i think if i remember correctly yeah, yeah. on the, yep on that cover two yeah. hole and it, the funny thing is like that was a bad ball like that was just a bad ball you, what made that play was you have a legitimate nfl receiver that if he wasn't injured is a clear starting top 10x in the nfl he just has injury issues and denzel mims making a spectacular catch that was the offense in 2018 and 2019 they didn't ask charlie brewer to read to read a lot of the field um and in 2020 they did and that's just, it is just not his game. And he's never been good at it. It's not a concussion issue. It's not a shoulder injury issue. He's never been good at reading the field. It's just not his some, game. Some guys either have it or they game, don't. But yeah. yeah, that just, they're not, he's, he was not a great mental processor. Yeah. And, and, it has, that, and to be clear, because I think, I think something that got uncomfortable with some fans is like, if you say a guy can't read defenses, I think there's an awkward implication that somebody's dumb. And it, it really has nothing to do with one another. There are plenty of guys that you probably wouldn't do great on the ACT who know how to read a field. I mean, it's just it's just one of those football skills that you have. 
Yeah, I, the, the the best description I can think of is it really is pattern recognition. And a, it's pattern recognition at a very quick rate. It has, it has nothing to do with a raw intelligence estimate. It has nothing to do with your ability to, like, you know, compute a line integral or, you know, some <laughs> other fancy <laughs> mathematical concept. Like, none of that stuff matters. It's pattern recognition and the ability to rotate decisions very quickly. Um, and he, you know, it, Brewer just did not have that. And he had many other skills, but that just was not one of them. And so and, and the confirmation for that was really, I, I, he did an interview with, I think it was um, David Smoke, I think, at the end of last year. I can't remember exactly. But um, the interviewer asked him, you know, can, can Charlie Brewer execute this offense? And this is with Aranda, yeah, with Aranda. Yeah, this was with Aranda. And Aranda was very honest and basically said, you know, it's really hard to design an offense where you it, well, I, your designs I remember what work he, and Yeah, practice. I remember what he said exactly. Yeah. He said, it's really hard when you're game planning Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then game day it all goes out the book because it's just scramble drill. I mean, that's that's what he said. Yeah, and that, yeah. Yeah, and that's that. That is 100% true. Like, that works when you have NFL wide receivers, and it doesn't when you don't. And that's just, that's, you know, the, we could talk for a long time about all the other stuff, but that's really what yeah. it comes down to. And then so, on top of all that, basically, you just have things compounded with a totally incoherent scheme, essentially, right? Yeah, yes. And I, I think all that kind of came, all that kind of came together with the incoherent scheme. And the last part that I'll say on the incoherent scheme um, really was the run game. And so that that was it, when Fedora actually got hired. That was my biggest concern. Um, Fedora came out of the ACC and it, at the ACC level, there was a very specific um, way of attacking defenses at the time, which was you want to get quick speed on the edge. And I'm not going to call it a non-physical game, but the goal is to get speed on the edge, speed on the edge, speed on the edge, speed on the edge. Um, but that didn't work for them because this is the Big 12, and 10 years ago in the Big 12 it would have worked, but in the Big 12 of the year of our Lord 2020, um, teams love it when you run outside. I mean, well, I, rem- I remember when I watched Fedora, and I was like, oh my gosh, Fleeks is going to kill it in this offense because he's going to get out on the edge. Well, yeah. it doesn't matter. I mean, if the scheme isn't there to where the defense is going to stop it, then it doesn't really matter what you do on offense, right? So. Yeah, exactly, and, and and that was that that play happened so many times where they would bring fleeks, fleeks come screaming around the end, and there's two guys right. within three yards of because the all the all, I mean, there's just yeah, nowhere to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so the, the the rushing the rushing attack was not going to work schematically. Um, the offensive system works when you have Joe Burrow, um, and Joe Burrow is not. I I'll be honest here. I don't think Joe Burrow is an elite quarterback. I think he is an elite college quarterback. But Joe, Joe Burrow has two two quantities in spades. Um, he's an elite mental processor, and he's got a fast release. Yeah. And if you pair that with NFL wide receivers like LSU did in 20, um, 2019, you're going to get a lot of big yards. But if you don't have those two things, that offense is going to be bad. And that all of that kind of added up to this just abomination that we saw yeah. in 2020. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I had I literally had two questions in my head that I'm resisting asking now because I know we got to move on to the Iowa State game. Um, could you uh, do your best to? I think what like I you hear it on so many broadcasts now. It's like Nick Saban went and visited John Heacock, who's the defensive coordinator of uh, Iowa State, and yeah. every coach is visiting them. I think it was in maybe in 2014, 20. Wait, 2015, 16. I don't. I don't even remember anymore. But anyway, it's been about five years now where their defense has kind of been groundbreaking. Can you kind of, from a very high level, kind of help fans understand like what is it that makes their defense special? Other than just, I think a lot of people know, you know, three safeties, middle safety, three down linemen. But other than that, like what is it that really kind of changed the game about their defense? 
yeah. So I think the first thing to stay with regards to them is it. It's not an exaggeration to say that I, I personally think that they probably have the biggest schematic change since uh, Jimmy Johnson at Miami. And Jimmy Johnson at, at the University of Miami in the early 80s, really, he brought the one-gap scheme to the forefront. It had been around, but it was not used very heavily. And I, to qualify that a little bit, he actually put it in place at Oklahoma State before he went to Miami. But at Miami, he went all in on it. Um, that was the biggest defensive revolution up in my life. And by one gap, you mean as defensive linemen playing to get in the backfield, essentially, as opposed to, to just kind of <clears throat> eating space as a, as a generic way yeah. of saying it. Yeah, I think that's a good way to phrase it. I think a, 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 a very common way to describe it on it is if a, if a defensive lineman is playing a two-gap, they're playing the offensive lineman in front of them. And if a defensive lineman is playing a one-gap scheme, they're playing the space between the right. two offensive yeah. players. So, but you think, but you think this Iowa um, State change was basically as big of a revolution as that was for Jimmy Johnson? I, I think it has the potential to. Now, you know, there's the 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 football schematic field is littered with people that say that this is the most amazing thing since sliced bread, but in a lot of ways, it really is because it it does something very fundamental with having a free hitter in the run, which is what the middle of the field safety does, and this is what Baylor did so well in 2019. Um, this Chris Miller. Um, Fans fan will remember yeah, Chris absolutely. Miller was the de- defensive back who looked like he was like 180 pounds dripping wet, but he would come mm-hmm. from eight, eight yards off the ball screaming, and nobody would have blocked him because he's an 180 pound defensive back, and an offensive lineman can't get his hands on him. Yep. Um, but you're seeing you're seeing the uh, you're seeing this three three safety look really begin to proliferate um, even into dare I say at the pros a little bit. Um, the Panthers don't run much of it this year, but they have absolutely dropped a couple of uh, three safety looks. Um, they did it against the Saints for a few plays as well. Um, that that's cut like that process is really evolving. Um, at the college level, you're seeing it proliferate really everywhere. Um, Arkansas absolutely suffocated the University of Texas a few weeks ago uh, with that with that same look. Um, Baylor has Baylor used it to great success in 2019. Iowa State has built a elite defense off, off of what amounts to I think probably four to five truly great yeah. players and they have been able to conjure together or you know all a, a great defense with only a few elite pieces and that just it's a testament to how good their coaching staff really is that they've been able to do it because um, it's not I mean when we say that they invented it whole cloth like they have come up with this scheme whole cloth they're not borrowing like a few bits and pieces from anywhere else although I will say it's a little funny to watch them this year they actually look like they borrowed a little bit from 2019 Baylor so <laughs> it goes around comes around um, they uh, you know Baylor Baylor stole a lot of what they were doing from them um, in 2019 but they made their own changes and now that they have gotten uh, I think so, some better defensive line play they look a little bit more like Baylor in yes. 2019 that they have um, than they have in the last few years yeah um, and yeah, so let, let's use that to transition. What is it that makes the defense, the current iteration, the team that Baylor is going to be playing this Saturday? You know, I think as you were just talking about defensive ends, that, that that's probably a good place to start. What is it about their def- uh, but about their personnel that that works so well? Um, so I, I will go ahead and say this. I I, I know that um, oh I'm I I'm, I'm terrible with pronouncing names. Uh, Oklahoma's uh, defensive lineman, who's the NFL draft, uh, Perry on, I think, Perry is, is all of a sudden it is 
Yes, Perry Winfrey. I know that he gets all of the. I know he gets all the publicity. Um, I, for my money, through the and he may he may get better over the course of the year, but there's no one in the Big Twelve that's playing defensive line better than um, ISU's number fifty eight, and I his name is Uzurike. Uzurike, maybe I don't know. Owazarike, yeah. um, and please, if you'd forgive me, I, I, shout out to Iowa State. They have got a, uh, they've got something where you can click and actually hear the name pronounced. And um, my terrible small town East Texas brain heard that and was like, "That's amazing!" <laughs> and of course, I immediately forgot it immediately. Um, well, Will McDonald's a little but, easier, and he's on the other side. So there you go. Will McDonald's is on the other side, but yeah, at 58, he's going to be he's going to be lined up. I'm just going to refer I, I refer to a lot of guys by numbers, but you know, 58 is going to be lined up a lot on the nose, and he's going to defensive end. And I think he's the best defensive lineman in the Big 12. And he's he's six foot six. He's 320 pounds. He has got he looks like you know Gumby out there with his long arms. I mean, he's got to have if he's got under 35 inch arms, I would be shocked. Um, he has got like vice grips. I mean, he looks like an X-Man with his hands. And I, I point this out specifically because if, for the fans that don't know, if, you, if you're interested in the NFL draft at all, um, Iowa, when they played Iowa two weeks ago, Iowa center, uh, 65, is a guy named Tyler Linderbaum, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, he, most OL guys that, that really follow, um, follow NCAA football in depth will tell you that he's the best center prospect probably in the last three or four years. Um, he and from watching him on against Iowa State, he looks like it. He's got great, <coughs> excuse me. He's got elite movement skills, great hip flexibility, um, great ankle flexibility, uh, very fast out of his stance, very technically sound. Um, just, I mean, he looks like the complete package at center. And fifty, like, there's no joke. Like fifty-eight beat him in a lot of reps, and there are very few reps where the best center prospect in the last three to five years was clearly beating him. And that's that's just a that's just a factual statement. I mean, he was for him to be able to play that well against Iowa is like kind of shocking. I mean, it just it's it's not. You have to be really really good to have the performance he put on. Um, so you you know they have him just absolutely as an anchor out there doing whatever he wants to do against most offensive linemen, and then you pair that with. Um, Will McDonald on the other end too, and I'll say this: you're, you're going to hear Will McDonald's name a lot on the broadcast because he was a preseason All-American. Um, the the conversation is probably going to go a lot like this: we're going to say, "Watch out for Will McDonald," and then you're not going to hear his name hardly at all. And then he'll make some spectacular play, and they go, "Well, we've been waiting for him to make an appearance," and he'll make this play, and then like another quarter and a half is going to go away, and you're not going to see him at all. And then he'll make another one. It's like he's trying to make an impact. Like that conversation is going to keep happening. Um, this is not the game for Will McDonald. Um, he's going to gamble and try to shoot some gaps around the offensive tackles. He will win a few of those, but um, this is not his game. Like, if he's going to get bull rushed and put on skates routinely, if they try to line him up over the tackle, which is what they want to do with him, he just he's this is not his game. He cannot he cannot hang in this environment. Um, the other guy though that I really want to pull pull one out is I believe it's fifty five, um, and I don't I don't oh I've got his name right here. I'm, I want to get this little oh solo. well Peterson he is his last name. Peterson, yeah, Peterson. Thank you. He's a good player. Uh, he is a he's more of a tra- he's a very good player. Yeah, um, and he's he's more of a traditional defensive end. So he's strong. He's got enough arm length. He's six four, um, two six four two seventy five. These are numbers off of Iowa State's website. So you know, take them with a slight grain of salt. I'm sure, but. It, it, he looks it on tape. I'll say that much. He looks that legitimate on tape. One of the things so that surprised me about him was I watched him and he's. He sometimes starts, and he's he's one of the rotational guys, right? And and uh, yeah, 
I saw him and I was like, oh, this guy's a good run defender. But one of the things I mentioned on the uh, Artie Lee podcast with Peter and with Coffee was defensive linemen, one thing you can acquire over time is you, you learn how to rush the passer because it's not an intuitive skill for most guys. You have to learn moves. And I was like, oh, this guy not only can just play tough in the run game, I mean, all of their guys, because they're all like redshirt seniors, they all have pass rush moves too. So not only are they stout, they're big, they're strong, they're fifth, six-year seniors, but they all can get after the quarterback, which just makes it doubly tough. So, Yeah. Um, I think it's a great that, – that is a great comment. You know, he – against Iowa, uh, he, you know – Iowa's left tackle looked like a homicide victim about one out of every three plays. I mean, he just, he would get out quickly, you know, great pad level. Um, he would get out, fire out very fast. He's in that, yeah, 55. So, yeah, I, the other guy that I think is really important and impactful is um, Peterson. He's uh, number 55, I believe. Um, defensive end, 6'4", 275. That's a program height weight, but he looks it on tape. Um, you know, I he he has two things that are really going for him. I think I think he's a little more rotational player. I know you've seen him a little bit more. Do you when you were watching him? Did anything stand out about him to you? Well, like I think I already kind of mentioned, just like yeah. he's just a he, he he clearly like just knows what he's doing with his hands. Kind of like the the Baylor defenders in 2019, the defensive yeah. linemen did too. They just they know how to get they know how to get the bodies off of them, the offensive line's bodies off of them. Yeah. Um, the other thing that he's really good at, you know, when you see a defensive lineman in a four point stance, you should always think. Um, you should, um, unless the defensive end is split out way, way wide, um, you should think rushing attack. And he's able to get off with great pad level and get his arms, he get his arms out. Y'all, y'all can't, y'all can't really see this because I'm showing it on video. Travis can see it, but defensive line coaches call it like shooting your arms, and you want to shoot your arms and time that with your hips so that when you land your punch, like it's not just your biceps, like it's your whole body coming into this punch. And he's able to do. The thing that makes him really good when you watch his game is he's able to do that and then very quickly transition into a pass rush move much more quickly than you would think of at his size. So whether it's like making contact and then dipping his shoulder around to take the outside edge or whether it's trying to like... I mean, that's what James Lynch was so good at, right? I mean, he could come off the ball and be playing run yeah. and then as soon as he recognized pass, he could, he could he could flip mode, yeah. Transition very quickly, Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean he's he's great at that. I mean he beat he beat the Iowa left tackle a bunch with that move where shoot the arms, like initially read and what what Iowa did that was actually very effective was Iowa put them in situation they both are defensive ends in situations where they could basically they had a two way go based off their read which is they could they, you know they engage the offensive tackle and then if they thought they had it they could go around the outside or they could go inside and both the linebackers behind them they play a four three were basically make right guys where it's like whatever the defensive lineman's doing I've got the opposite gap. Um, and they, you know, they they tore them up, like for sure, <laughs> uh, with that approach. So, it, you know, those guys. That's what really stands out to me. I, I think there there are other impact players on this team, um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about them. But if the the, the headliners for sure, the defensive line. This is let's be very clear about this. This is the best defensive line Baylor will play in twenty twenty one, unless they honestly probably make the playoffs. I think that you, you would have to look at Georgia or Alabama um, and uh, Oregon, I think, are the three that I look at. Maybe Clemson, although based off what I saw against Georgia, I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm sure, well, by the time that we would ever actually play them, they would be a lot better. Um, but I think those are like the three, four maximum that are better. Now, this isn't to say that, that a school like A&M doesn't have better depth because they do. It doesn't mean they don't have studs, which they do. But when you think about a three, when you think about going back to what we said earlier about organizational, taking three guys and wedding them 
that are great players with great technique and a great scheme fit for them. This defensive line to me is the best in the Big 12, and I think one of the I would say a top five in college football. Period. And they're backed up by some, uh, you know, Iowa State's never really going to have great corner or even necessarily all their safeties going to be great, but they're backed up by some good linebackers and then their middle safety, the guy who plays that Chris Miller position from Baylor is a stud also. So anything stand yeah. out to you about them? It really, what, what they do with their linebackers is really interesting. So, you know, in, in the modern game, you know, you, t- you typically want linebackers that can just run like the wind. You know, run, 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 run. That's, that's, that's the first and most important thing. What their defensive linemen do a really great job of is they, they're, they're a little bit larger in terms of just overall size. I think you but, said defensive linemen, but you meant linebackers, right? Yeah, linebackers, yeah, thank you, sorry. Uh, linebackers. What they're really good at is um, really twofold. They're great in their zone drops, which is a very underrated skill. Um, being good in a zone drop is not something you can just do. It's not just backpedaling and then like standing statically in a spot. You have to be uh, very comfortable reading the quarterback size. You have to feel very comfortable with understanding what the route combinations are behind you, what you're to be expected, because you can't turn around and look behind you to see, to look for the guy. You have to have done your tape and know this guy's probably got an in-breaking route at 12 yards, which means I probably need to be three yards to my left or three yards to my right. You cannot turn your head. You have to instinctively know like how far to drop back, how to move, all that kind of stuff. That's that's a that's a difficult skill, and their linebackers do it very, very well. Um, the other thing that they do very well, I think, is they're very good at setting a hard edge in the run game. Um, that more so than I think most linebackers in the Big 12, uh, they're very comfortable with getting into the body of an offensive lineman. Now, most of them don't have the arm length to really properly stack and shed, and what I mean by that is you get in, you grab onto the offensive lineman, and you push him off from you. So you're stacking him up, you extend your arms out, and then you throw him to the side. And I'm, I'm demonstrating the world's worst stack and shed technique on, on video. <laughs> but, you know, that, that's that's kind of the that's kind of the move right there. They don't necessarily – they're not necessarily great at that because of their arm length, but they're very comfortable getting into the bodies of offensive linemen. That's not a skill that that many defensive uh, linebackers have in the Big 12. Baylor's linebackers – yeah, um, Terrell wants to get around you. Yeah, he wants to get around. He wants to get around. He wants to shoot gaps. Um, Doyle's a little better at it, but it's still not 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 to their degree. And so they make really good use of that. They use their linebackers to set the edge in ways that most schools don't, and allows them to be very flexible in some of their coverage looks. Yeah, well, and the other thing it allows you to do is, as you talked about, what's so revolutionary about this getting that free hitter? So you have your defensive linemen who are occupying the offensive line with great technique. You have your linebackers who are very comfortable getting inside the bodies of the offensive linemen, setting edges and being physical. And then that allows a free hitter to come off the top, and that free hitter is that middle safety. Yeah, 100%. Um, and they're, 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 and I think in the secondary, this is their secondary is their weakest part, I think, overall of, the, of, of their total. Of their total. And this is not to say that they're bad players. They're not bad players. But, you know, if I'm going to say that their defensive line is one of the five best in, in all of college football, that, you know, Saying that they are good, not <laughs> yeah, one of the top five yeah. best. Like that's just a factual statement. Um, I, they they seem on tape. You know, it's it's very difficult to qual- It's difficult to do a good analysis of DB play from yeah. broadcast TV because you just all you really see. You know, are, there's re- really you see three things. You see, um, are they in zone hip or are they in man hip at the start of the snap? 
and that'll tell you whether pretty much what key they're going to do. And then you can kind of see if they're in press, whether or not they're terrible at press or whether or not they're okay <laughs> at press. And for college defensive backs, unless you're basically a first-round NFL draft pick, nobody's elite at press. It's an incredibly difficult skill to learn. Um, and then the third thing that you can really do is you can watch whether or not they're good at getting into phase if, if there's a vertical route. And occasionally you can see some of the communication stuff. You can see that with Baylor. But again, you know, that's that's really nitpicking. You just, without the tape, without the All-22, it's really hard to judge. So the only thing that I would say that really stands out to me, to be honest, uh, I, I think their CBs are, they don't have as much speed as I would personally want. Now, they trade that away by their CBs being absolutely willing to lay the wood. Um, so they can put their CBs in, um, basically in some run situations that makes it much more likely for them to get stops. And Baylor tried that. We'll talk about this more later, I'm sure. But Baylor tried that last year to very poor success. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. Uh, Baylor tried to um, really support the run game with their cornerbacks last year, and it was, it just didn't work. Well, it doesn't help uh, when one of them is wearing a club basically all year. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that is true. Yeah, Bo- Boogie was absolutely wearing a club. Um, but from a coverage, getting back to that real quick. But from a coverage perspective, they're they're okay. Uh, they're not um, they're not what I would qualify as uh, great, yeah. but they are okay. Yeah. So, would you do you think Baylor probably has? I mean, judging off what you've seen from Thornton and Snead and Fleeks this year, you would fair to say they have a, a market advantage there, probably. Yes, absolutely. That Baylor's biggest advantage in this game, top to bottom, is there are their wide receivers on Iowa State secondary. Okay. That's that is by far Baylor's biggest mismatch in, gotcha. in this game. So, uh, so on the Arday podcast with Peter, I, I mentioned that something that fans could watch in the game is to see how they're using that middle safety in the sense of does he look like he only cares about tackling the running back or is he flipping his hips early in the snap to get back to cover against the post? It, you know, A, do you agree that that's probably the most important thing to look on early on? As far as what they're doing schematically, obviously, like looking to see whether their defensive line is just beating Baylor's Baylor up every snap is really important too. But are there any other kind of keys that you're looking for um, when we're talking Iowa State defense versus offense as far as a, a player or a scheme goes? So I, I would, I think it's pretty similar to what you just said. I'll qualify it this way: you're going to see, you'll you'll see three safeties on the field. All right. If you're very curious about how nervous Iowa State is about their rushing attack, basically you just need to count how many safeties move forward when they when they trigger on run. It may be one, it may be two, it may be three. If it's one and Baylor can't run the ball, it's going to be a very long day for Baylor. If it's two, Baylor's going to be able to make some stuff happen. If it's three, Baylor is going to win the game, yeah. and I, that's that's a very simplistic way to view it. But and there's always there's going to be there's going to be obviously certain situations where that's not the case. But if you're talking on like a standard down approach, if it's second and eight in the second quarter, and they're sending eight guys, uh, and they're sending eight guys in the in the uh, rushing plan, actually not in the rush plan, but in the um, in the run fit, excuse me, that's what I meant to say, in the run fit, then that tells you that they're very concerned that they can't hold up against the wide zone. Like, they need that extra guy down in the box to gap out. Um, And if they have that, if you see that a lot early on, that's a very good sign for Baylor. Great. Um, All right, well, let's move to the other side of the ball, unless you have any other last thoughts about Iowa State defensively that you want to share. Um. I think one thing I will add on, on Iowa State, they, you know, they're very famous for their drop eight coverage. Um, there's there's a reason for that. It works, obviously. That's like I'm telling you the sun comes well, it's like these, but back in it, 2019, you know, Baylor would drop eight almost every third down, and it just it just yeah. worked. I mean, it didn't it matter that teams yep. knew it was coming. 
Yeah. I mean, it just works. Uh, it works for two reasons. Um, it works because the defensive line can get pressure. The other reason is that there's not a lot of places to throw uh, when you have when you've got eight, there's something about going from seven to eight that really sucks up the space in the front level of the defense that makes it very hard to throw intermediate routes because there's not there aren't great throwing lanes to the intermediate zone, um, and that's very difficult. The thing I will point out on because Baylor executes so many rollouts, something that I would very much watch is on passing downs. What are they doing with their cornerbacks? Uh, Iowa State jumps back and forth a lot between their version of Tampa 2 and their version of what I'll refer to as P33. Um, but that's basically, there are two different ways of executing what amounts to a, a, a drop eight coverage. And really it has to do a lot more with how you're filling up that middle void and uh, that middle safety going north or south. The reasoning for that is if you if they run a lot of Tampa 2, that means that there's going to be more holes available on the sidelines. It's also going to mean it's going to be a lot more difficult to... Um, execute the rollouts because the cornerbacks are sitting there in the flats their job is to jam up the wide receivers they're physical enough they can do that and then they just sit there and they see they see a quarterback roll out their job is to go get him like just charge get him off that don't let him don't let him sit and hold like go and get him moved um so pay attention to whether in the zone coverages their cornerbacks are dropping back for a p33 look or whether or not they're sitting flat in tampa that's going i think going to uh, really affect what grimes wants to do offensively throughout the course of the game gotcha and you say that specifically because when obviously if you're on the rollout and those cornerbacks are just sitting there waiting to hit the quarterback it's not a very rolling out is essentially pointless and that's yeah, rolling out's essentially pointless. You're going to get GB is going to get lit up a few times, like full stop. Um, we don't want GB to get lit up. Yeah. You know, he is he is the chosen <laughs> one as far as I'm concerned. Um, I'm sure we'll get to that soon. But uh, you know, he uh, we don't want we we don't we don't want him get hurt. So <laughs> uh, if they're doing a lot of that, you just won't see because it's not an effective play. Yeah. You know, it's not it's it's just schematically you're just beat yeah I mean, there's no other way to put it so that they, they have a few there are a few curveballs you can throw against that and rollouts against Tampa too but it's, there's nothing consistent you can win off of over the course of a game gotcha all right so let's flip to the other side of the ball uh Baylor on offense versus Iowa State or excuse me oh my gosh Baylor on defense <laughs> versus Iowa State on offense we just didn't talk about Gary that much so I almost thought that we hadn't talked about Baylor on offense yet but I let, let's say one last thing actually sticking on that previous side of the ball yeah. What do you have any kind of general expectations for Gary in this game based off what you see in the first three games? So this is really interesting because if I if I was designing a game plan from scratch based off what I've seen Gary be able to do right now, it would not really necessarily look a lot like what their traditional offense is. Um, that Gary, <laughs> I'm kind of I'm chuckling to myself because I'm not I'm not trying to blow smoke on Gary. I. I genuinely flabbergasted by what he looks like after three games. Um, I, I, I'll say that I don't think the staff had any idea that he would look like this. Um, he looks like the third best quarterback in the Big 12, and he's played three games, and one of those guys is injured in Skylar Thompson. I mean, if you were to look at the active quarterbacks right now and you were to ask me to pick, and just if you were to throw at everything and go the first three games only, okay, so I get, you know, there's part of that that is obviously related to uh, current talent level that they played against, but he's been the second best active quarterback. I, I don't think it's particularly close. Um, what he has done. What he has done very well is really kind of shocking because it's not what his rep was coming into this year. But what he's been great at specifically is he's an outstanding, outstanding mental processor. And there's a play that I actually think I sent this to you um, 
after the Texas Southern game, um, and I actually uh, messaged a few people on the staff about it. I was like, this is this play is absurd and just like absolutely ridiculous. And it's it's Q two ten thirty five. Um, it was a third and three. They're in the red zone, and um, Gary that uh, Jeff. Before you finish here. Um, for anybody, if you're listening or you're on your computer or whatever, I, I used this play in the article I wrote about Gary Abraham last week saying Gary's the real deal. So if you want to kind of look at it while Jeff's talking about it, you can pull it up there. Uh, and full credit to Jeff. He's the one who pointed this out to me. So there we go. Go ahead, Jeff. Um, so, yeah, there's, you know, it's I think it's about third and three. They're in, I want to say, uh, I think they're in 11 personnel. So, you know, 11, 11 personnel would be one running back, one tight end, three wide receivers. Um, and you know, the very first thing that happens is someone gets motion across the field, and Gary immediately recognizes that they're in man coverage, okay? So his his reprogression is going to change, most likely is going to change from one side of the field to the other based on whether or not it's man or zone. So he reads man, and ball gets snapped, all right? So he immediately looks to the tight end. Tight end's covered. He immediately moves to the running back. Running back's covered. Immediately moves to the middle. Why don't of the we field. stop right there, Jeff? Yeah. How amazing! Uh, can you explain to fans how rare it is for a college quarterback to even just move from one to two? Yeah. So most, if you're thinking about this, um, most college quarterbacks get asked really to make two primary reads. The first one is they they get asked to read a cornerback a cornerback's hips, which is are they in man or do they have zone hips? That's that is. That uh, obviously that's not the case for every quarterback, but that is the default read for most, which is read the cornerback's hips. Are they in man? Are they in zone? That's going to tell you where your primary read. And, is, read and is a zone cornerback is going to be kind of flipping his hips laterally and shuffling as opposed to like yeah, playing the man the, in front of him. Yeah, that, that, thank you for asking. Like, yeah, a zone hips are going to be a lot of times you're going to see a cornerback turn and he's gonna, his hips are going to be parallel to oh, the sidelines yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, but but to the sidelines, and they're going to sh- they will shuffle out. The reasoning for that is you want to be able to seal off seal off behind you and be able to break extremely quickly on any fast in routes. Um, and it also makes it a lot easier to read and play that specific zone technique in that area as you're moving down the sidelines. So yeah, you get asked to make that read, and then typically you get asked to uh, read an individual defensive player. And then, based off that player, you've got one or two spots. Yeah. And so, typically, most most college quarterbacks in a standard offense, and this is true for uh, Brock Purdy and some of the stuff I've seen as well, basically, they've got two reads and, and plays over. Okay? And really, the two reads are Manor determining zone. initial yeah. manner zone and then reading the guy for one of the combination routes, and then you move on. Um, there's a reason that very few college coaches run traditional dropback passing because it's really hard to build a dropback passing game out of that. Um, and just to be honest, like Art Browse didn't do that. Like Art Browse gave quarterbacks reads very rarely. Um, you know, it's it's a predetermined read off of one or two things based off what a safety's doing, or there's a call on the sidelines, which is like you're going to throw a go route, and if it's covered, you just throw the ball out of bounds. Like that's the play. Yep. We'll try it again. We'll you know we'll try it again on the next on the next down. So going like going through multiple progressions is pretty rare. That he goes through. He goes. Yeah. Through so we're back at this play. Yeah. Five. So he yeah, one to two. Point, yeah. yeah. One to two, yeah. So it goes one to two. Then he rotates, and he's, he's looking in the middle of the field. He sees that person is covered. He rotates again to, like, you know, three-quarters of the way from his original read. That individual's covered. And then he rotates finally to his fifth read. Um, he makes all five reads in about four seconds. That's extremely quickly. That is, I mean, that just full stop. That's extremely fast, okay? Um, at that point, uh, Maz, who's the left guard, um, 
he gives up a pressure. I really hate saying he gives up a pressure because it's been four seconds. After <laughs> it's been four seconds, like you've done, like he has done his job on that play. Like that, he, you know, when he's getting graded by Mateos uh, after after that game, Mateos is not going like, oh yeah, you know, this is a minus minus because you gave up pressure. Like you you held up for four seconds, you're good. Okay, like that's that's a very long time in in the real world of offensive line play, but he gives he gives up the pressure and starts to move in, and rather than forcing the ball to the open guy, I, uh, Jerry, um, sorry Gary, <laughs> again Jeff Giff, all that kind of stuff. Gary, I know everyone's struggling with that. Like, Gary pulls the ball down and runs for the touchdown, and if you don't if, if you don't know how hard that play is, it looks like he couldn't find anybody and then like ran up the middle, but. He because that's something we body. saw a lot from from Charlie in the past, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you watch his feet on that play, like his feet are lined up with the correct read on every single yeah. spot. So he's not like turning his head. He has his body in position four separate, or excuse me, five separate ways in four seconds while keeping his feet alive. And he doesn't. The, the second part of that that I'll add on to it is when the guy gets close, his eye level doesn't drop, which is like insane yeah. for a quarterback in his second game you know i mean that just that that level of i don't need to panic i can just get up the hole because there was there it's in man coverage you know what man coverage a quarterback knows that unless there's a spy your out is straight up the middle okay so you know he knew where his out was he knew where his escape was and as soon as he felt it he never dropped his eye level and he just went where he was supposed to go now that you know, obviously those holes will get tighter as they play better teams. Uh, guys will be moving faster. But the ability to process those reads, like, that's the kind of stuff that works whether you're playing against Texas Southern or you're playing against Alabama. The throws are obviously a lot more difficult against Alabama than they are against Texas Southern, but the mental processing speed is still there. Gotcha. Um, and that's that's the biggest thing that I think translates for his game and why I'm so excited to watch him against this defense is – what what does he look like long term? Um, what does he look like in this game? How is he able to process, and is he able to exude the calm and the confidence that he's shown so far? Which is really just, again, like this is not what a guy in his third, in his second and third start should look like. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just not, and it does it doesn't matter his age. It's just not what you'd expect. Like, I, I would expect you know there are great quarterbacks that have really bad like second and third games against anyone. I mean, it just, it's just the nature of the position. It's an incredibly difficult spot to play. And so he's certainly going to have his mistakes, but he just he's looked better early on than I think the fans or, again, I think that the staff really expected. So what do you think about uh, – obviously, we can actually look back to 2020 to see how Aranda and Roberts decided to attack Iowa State offense last year. So moving to that side of the ball, you know, what did you learn from watching that game last year? What do you think they're going to do differently? What are they going to do the same? Because it's a lot of the same players, except for you kind of add Apu, and, you, and every defensive lineman is essentially put on like 30 pounds from last year. But other than that, so what, what do you think on that side of the ball? Yeah, so th- actually the most the, the, the most interesting part about last year's game was I think it's like the second possession or something like that. Um, Franklin comes out, and Franklin looks like he's like 260. I mean, like he looks tidy. And, like, he, I mean, he does not look at all like he does this year. And it, it's very noticeable how underweight those guys were last year. Um, the defensive line last year was horrendous. And, like, they'll, if you were to get them in a room and they'd be like, how'd you play last year? They're all going to tell you, man, that was a bad game. <laughs> um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that they've probably got, 
I would say five, maybe six guys this year that are playing better than the guy that played best last year played on the defensive line. Um, part of that is, again, just weight um, and just actually looking like you've been able to work out due to COVID for um, the first, you know, consistently. But they look a lot better. Um, the thing that I really noticed about what Iowa State wants to do, um, Iowa State, I, in the run game, Iowa State wants to make your defensive backs tackle. And every, you know, every offensive coordinator always says that out loud. We want to make our we want to make defensive back tackle. But they they go to great lengths to try to do it. So on the first play of the game, you know, uh Boogie um Caleb This Barnes, is the Baylor Iowa State game from last year. Baylor State last year. Yes sir. Um so like they motion they motion into a condensed set and he's in man so they pull Boogie into the box and they run right at him unblocked. And Boogie can't make the tackle. Um, now part of that is because he had a club for a hand. So, you know, it's it's pretty obvious. But they ran right at him on the first play of the game, and he had a clean look, and he missed the tackle for what would have been a two-yard game. Well, even even a real, even even cornerbacks that you would describe as good tacklers, if you could set up a one-on-one with your big athletic running back versus them in the hole, you're still going to take that. Yeah, you'll take that every single time, 100%. Um, and that like that first play really set the tone for the rest of the game. Uh, later on, what, what, what Roberts decided to do, and I'll, I'll clarify this, I thought Roberts had a great game plan for attacking their pass defense. I'm much more skeptical of how he attacked their rushing plan. Um, he really wanted to put their DBs, he really wanted to put Baylor's DBs um, as force defenders or edge defenders against this, against um, Iowa State and that led to a bunch of plays you know I think their very first touchdown they ran uh, Iowa State ran duos um, which is two double teams uh, on the offensive line which is like designed to either just get right up the gut and mash for three yards or maybe you can bounce it outside for a game and Roberts had it dialed perfectly he called Mark Milton on a blitz Milton comes um, unblocked around the side and Hall puts like Hall does a jump cut and basically takes his soul <laughs> And once he takes his soul, he's got time to like bury it in the backfield and still get around the edge before running for a 15-yard touchdown. And those plays cropped up a lot in this game. Roberts did a lot of gambling with sending guys off the edge, expecting them to be able to make tackles. And I think for the most part, they didn't really hold up. Um, I, Petrie, I, I think it's Petrie I pronounced that. I always feel yeah, bad. I'm not, yeah. not 100% sure. Petrie, okay, good. I, I, Petrie obviously did a better job about that, particularly when he was pursuing from the backside. But it was never... Um, you know, when they had him face up or they had him in the hole, like they just missed way too many of those tackles. And I don't know, maybe they feel more comfortable with those guys this year, be asking them to make those tackles and to execute that game plan. But I don't know that I would if I was Roberts. Um, he's definitely a gambler, so he probably will go, he'll probably just do it and say, if you beat me, if you beat me with this consistently, then you beat me with this, but I'm going to generate enough negative plays that I can offset it. That may be the right approach. I, I, I really don't know. Um, Baylor got mashed really hard in that game last year, and basically they got three horrendous Purdy INTs um, that kept that game close. Um, they kind of did whatever they wanted to offensively, except for about five plays when Purdy lost his mind and like threw horrendous balls. And one thing that is kind of funny, you know, the worst ball he had of the day, he threw a hail mary to the sidelines for like a four-yard pass like he was falling down and just like launched a rocket into the air this ball's in the air for like five to six seconds and there's three bears around it and like somehow not none of them come up with the pick and the ball lands out of bounds because there's there's literally so many defenders around that they can't intercept the ball like on a Hail Mary um, the nice thing about Purdy is he 
you know, you can never rely on uh, turnovers necessarily, but in some sense with him, like, I'd be surprised if there wasn't two turnovers from him in this game. It just kind of seems like who he is at this point. Yeah, he is. I, the, Purdy, Purdy has a little bit of Charlie Brewer in him in that he's better outside of structure. Um, where Purdy panics, and you can see this in the Iowa game plan, you can see this against Baylor last year, like the, the, the game plan is out on, on him, which is keep him contained and speed up his clock, and he's going to he's gonna yeah. make bad decisions. Um, if he's outside of structure, he calms down a lot because the game gets really simplified for him, and he's basically got three options, which is burn the ball, you know, burn it, force a throw, yeah. and run, because that's usually what you're going to do. And so he feels a lot more comfortable in that situation. He's got enough arm talent that he can make those throws on the move. But if they can keep him in, if they can basically keep him inside the box and send a few blitzes against them, at, they're going to get his clock sped up, and I, I would not. I would be surprised if he had a big game. I mean, it just it seems like there's a way to attack him and force him into some bad situations, and I think Baylor will be able to replicate that. Whether they're able to replicate uh, any type of run defense against them, that I think to me is a big. Yeah, reason. I mean, so uh, so my general like top down view of this game is that I don't think Iowa State's going to be able to consistently move the ball, and what I mean by that isn't like. Every time they get a first down, I'm not going to be like, no way, how did they do it? But what I mean is, you know, I, I don't think that on the majority of, of possessions, they're going to be getting four, five, six first downs. I think a lot of it is going to come on Brees Hall forcing missed tackles, Purdy getting outside of the pocket and making a big play. Is that kind of your general perception too, or would you would you disagree with me there? I, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, the they're going to hit some plays. I, I think, you know, you've done a little bit more work on uh, their wide receivers particularly because I'm so focused on um, I'm so focused on line play because that's just where I love to nerd out. But, you know, it, talk a little bit. Can, oh, oh, yes, I, love, I got to say it. I got to say the line. Talk a little <laughs> bit about. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm the official question asker now. Um, what do you see from Hutch yeah, Hutchinson? Hutchinson, Hutchinson yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, Hutchinson, yeah, Hutchinson, that's right. Uh, what do you see from Hutchinson that really He's stands like out to you? Because he's the only other skill guy that I see that I'm like, this guy looks on tape. He yeah. looks... He's kind of like if RJ Sneed had faster foot turnover, you know? Like, he's able to get... I think... What makes him good is like... so, And it's the same thing when I watched RJ out of high school. RJ is the kind of guy that you could see becoming a different... Like, there were a lot of different avenues for RJ to become a good player. Because he has good speed. He has good... He has great hands. He's tough. He's a good route runner. Like, kind of says everything well. And I think Hutchinson's the same way, but I would probably add, you know, 0 0.05 seconds to his 40. If RJ runs a 4.65, I think Hutchinson probably runs a 4.6. And But he's got that RJ aspect to his game where, like, you can tell he really relishes, like, oh, I know from the design of this play, like, I'm getting a one-on-one -on -one here, and, like, I'm going to eat it. Like, I, I've got this play. Yeah. And so that's where, that's where I'd really worry if I was Baylor in the sense of, like, if Baylor ever gives up a slant RPO to Hutchinson where they don't have a safety ready to smash him as soon as he catches the ball, I mean, that's just a massive gaff from Roberts, in my opinion, because I think that's really one of the only ways they can consistently move the ball is to throw the ball, is to give Purdy a, an easy read on an RPO to throw it to him on a slant. Uh, I'm okay with leaving one-on-one -on -one downfield because, like, that's just college football. You're going to have to leave a guy one-on-one -on -one downfield every now and again. Uh, not every play, obviously, but, yeah, I mean, he's a he's just a – He's just one of these guys that kind of does everything well. Uh, he doesn't have as good of hands as RJ does. Not many do, and he is susceptible to some drops. But he's just one of these guys that, that has a really good all-around game, for sure. And, and clearly plays with an yeah. edge, which is what you want from, like, any wide receiver. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, he's he's the other guy that I think has has a lot of of capability. One thing from Baylor's perspective on this game, you know, when I watch when I watch their offensive line, um, I'm very unimpressed with the right side of their Um, their right guard. I believe it's uh, yeah, it's uh, 55, and you know, not not to dog on a kid too much because there are some there have been some bad players for Baylor in the past for sure, but he really struggles against speed. And I, I like. I think a, a, a situation you're going to see a lot in this game is they're going to put Bernard on the right guard, and they're going to tell him like, "You go beat this guy on either gap, and yeah. figure it out." And like, th- he's he's going to get asked to do that a lot. Um, their right tackle, I think, is um, that's probably my in- most interesting matchup defensively outside of uh, whatever uh, whoever's manning up against Hutchinson. Um, is their their right guard? He reminds me a little bit of like Blake Blackmar for for a deep cut for Baylor fans. Like he's a big, stout, not the best movement skills um, ox, um, and he you know he a couple of times like he almost looks like he's lumbering around like trying to get to the second level, almost like a guy that's like had a huge you know Thanksgiving meal and is like trying to waddle into the living room. Like he doesn't have the best. He just he doesn't move, and you can see it in, in for an offensive lineman. I, I always look at a guy's back with how he's moving. If he's holding his back too far upright, it usually means that he doesn't feel comfortable being really on the move because they're almost like sitting up. It, it's hard to describe visually or just with an audio term, but like watching a guy's back while he's moving really tells you a lot about how good their movement skills really are. Can they like make, when they're off when they're off balance trying to make contact on a block, can they follow through with that? Well, obviously standing straight up is your least, least uh, stable yes. position whenever yeah. you're making contact with somebody, so. Yeah, and you, you don't have as much speed, and there's a bunch of stuff going on. So he does a lot of that. Um, I think like Cole Maxwell against him, that that's going to be a really big game um, for a game. You know, another another announcer term, the game within the game. Um, Cole Maxwell against their right tackle is going to be huge. Um, Cole's, I think, the best. He's the best run defender, defensive lineman on on uh, out there right now. He is great at. Uh, Going back to what we talked about earlier, like shooting his hands, shooting his arms, like gaining, getting his hands into the armpits of the opposing offensive lineman and being able to like direct him where he wants to go to shake him off when he wants to t- attack a gap. Um, he's great at that. So if he can hold that edge and he can stand up against the power that their right tackle has um, in the run game, Baylor's going to be able to do some really good things. Um, and then I, I guess the last thing that I would point out, I guess, we, should we do a poo right now? Should we save that for another time? It just, like, I mean, it depends whether you need to talk about him for 20 minutes or not, but I would be interested to hear what you have to say because I think this is obviously a pretty important game for him, whether he's able to stand up to double teams, right? Yeah, I, so the thing about a poo, and this this is this really kind of cracks me up because it's it's the it's the thing of when you actually are able to, uh, going back to the very first thing we talked about on the podcast, like why I love football. So you see this, absolutely gargantuan six foot four human that has legs for arms and is literally as strong as like a fire hydrant or an ox <laughs> or you know goliath like whatever the term is you want to use like this dude is stout and so your initial thought with a guy that big and that strong is this guy's going to be a monster run defender and he's not he's an elite pass rusher at his size which doesn't make any sense but that's his game he's got he, a he's got know, a james lynch game you, even though he's like <laughs> he got it he's yeah i mean he's got his his shoulders so he's got two things we're really going for him. the first one is his shoulders are so big that once he gets into a gap 
It's really, unless you have really, really long arms, and most interior offensive linemen don't, it's really hard to be able to get around him to regain leverage. You're almost like chasing him into the hole in a way. The second thing is he's really good at his hands. And pass rushing in a lot of ways is in the ability to attack an offensive lineman's hands to get him off of you and then to get an, an interesting angle or an edge on the offensive lineman, power through the gap, and force a quarterback off his spot. That's 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 the art of... of um, of pass rush, and that's what makes a great pass rusher. It's not getting sacked, it's moving the quarterback off the spot, and hopefully you get the tackle, but at the very least, you you get him off the spot. He's great at that. Um, he has struggled a lot more in, um, Aranda talked about this earlier, so he struggled a lot more in uh, zone techniques, which is like, I've got to fire out low, I've got to, I've got a double team coming onto me, I've got to eat that block, which takes a lot of technique. Handling a double team is, is tough because you have to turn, and I, I'm about 99% sure that Meatball or DJ teaches it this way. Meatball's um, Baylor's defensive line. Which is, it, yeah, thank you. Um, which is, you, you know, you want to fire out low, and when you feel the double team, there's two things you want to do. The first one is you want to rotate, and most coaches will teach you go down to a knee, okay? Because in the real world, like, unless you're actually basically Vita Vea, you're not going to stand up against a double team against 350 pounds of grown-ass man. Like, it just doesn't work that way, okay? Everyone gets taken for a ride on the double team. So double team is a lot about, is a lot about technique. So you want to put your knee on the ground and rotate so that your shoulders get between. Is I'm, I'm, I'm demonstrating this on the video, but you want to rotate so that your shoulders get between the offensive lineman down on the knee, and you almost makes it, it you can't get a guy moved off that spot, okay? And at that point, you've got two things. You can either hold the hell out of the other guy that's comboing you and trying to climb, which is what he did against um, Kansas to, to pretty good effect, um, or you can turn that guy loose, but when you stand up, you are inside of the gap and you sealed off that hole. Um, so that he has not demonstrated to me that he can do that at all yet. Um, it's a very difficult block to handle. Um, handling combo blocks from the interior is, I think, it's 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 so tough because it just everyone thinks it's about strength, but really, playing nose tackle is about reacting in literally hundreds of a second to the slightest move of a footstep or a hand placement or whatever. And there's you know a handful of blocks that you're going to be able to read over the course of the game, but you got to read it perfectly and you've got to get yourself in the right spot. And particularly when you're dealing with double teams against zone, your conditioning really shows up because you've got to be able to turn fast. You've got to get onto your knee fast. You've got to be able to get back up fast. And a lot of the stuff that Apu has dealt with from the first two games that we've seen him, his conditioning hasn't just hasn't been as good as it needs to be. And that's that's not, you know, Aranda has said that. It's really obvious on tape. Um, he is outstanding for like the first two seconds of the play, and it tails off real fast. Um, he's not a secondary hitter in the running game, and that's another reason why I think he struggles as a rush defender or as a run defender. Um, to be a great run defender, you got to be a secondary hitter. And if you're not going to be a secondary hitter, you know, it's... it's and by, it and by a secondary hitter, you mean running. guys like Cole Maxwell and stuff that even if the play is away from them, they chase yeah. down the ball carrier. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's, yeah, you, if you watch Cole Maxwell on plays away from him, like he sheds off, and if he doesn't have contain, he is hauling ass down the line on a really good angle, and to like rally to the ball, and that that stuff really matters over the course of the game. Like, you know, you may do that, you may execute that twenty times over the course of the game, you might get one tackle out of that, but that one tackle that you get is going to be the difference between a four yard yeah. gain and a twelve yard gain, and like those little plays over the course of the game, like those add up and those really matter, um, and. Apu just has not been able to do that. Now, I will say that he looked – it's it's very interesting. Like I thought he was, in my grades, he was the fifth-best defensive lineman against Texas Southern um, – excuse me, against uh, Texas State. And I thought he played much, much better against Kansas. Like, his improvement from 
from the first game to the third game was massive. So there's definitely there's definitely room to grow there. Um, we just need to see we just need to see you know see him take the next step. Well, last thing I'll add on this side of the ball is I just I just thought earlier today, but I think I think this is going to be a huge game for JT Woods for three reasons. First is I think that with Baylor's propensity uh, to to miss some tackles in the backfield, I think he's going to be a necessary. It's going to be a necessary cleanup duty type of game for him where if Hall's breaking it out and it's either going to be a 40-yard gain or a touchdown versus a 10-yard gain, those are going to be big tackles for JT. Another one is like I was saying, it was with Xavier Hutchinson, their wide receiver. A lot of times they're just isolating him against a cornerback, and I think it's going to be a big deal for Woods to kind of be giving that cornerback help over the middle. Um, And then hopefully, you know, this kind of goes for any defender, but he can be the recipient of one of those big Brock Purdy uh, stupid throws. So we'll see on that. yeah, I, he, yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I, Woods may be my favorite defender on the on the defensive side of the ball at this exact moment in time. If it's not Maxwell, like his growth over the last year is like tremendous, um, and so I, I expect like he's to the point now where I'm like, this dude's going to have a big game because this game sets up well for him. So right. I think that's a great. Point. Well, here's what we'll do: we were going to do a, a prediction and everything else like that, but uh, here's what I'll force Jeff to do since we're going so long and uh, he's got to get going. We'll uh, have you all follow him on Twitter, and I'll get him to make sure that he puts out his prediction for the game on Saturday and gives a few reasons why. How about that? I'll do it right now if you want. If you want to do it, all right. I'll do sixty seconds. All right, get after it. If we want to do that, okay. I just wanted people to follow okay. you. Uh, so right? I'll say. <laughs> oh, you know, my, my my account's very boring. Um, the uh, I'll say this: uh, this game has a lot of contradictions in it. I don't. I'm not going to ramble for three minutes. I really don't know what to make of this game um, in a lot of ways. Like, I have changed my mind, I think, on this score every four hours for the last week. Uh, Every time I watch a new piece of tape, my mind changes. Um, I think, to sum up this game real quickly, I'll say this. I think Baylor's defense is going to spot um, Iowa State 10 points. And what I mean by that is Roberts has shown that he's going to be very aggressive in trying to stop the rushing attack. He's going to take gambles. Most of those gambles will work. Some of them won't. That's that's why they call it a gamble, obviously. So I think we're there's a bare minimum of ten points that Baylor's going to give up off of gambles. The question for me is how much can they get off the rest of it? I based off what I've seen, I think it's not much. So I I'm very much leaning to Iowa State scoring about nineteen points, maybe twenty three. That feels like a very safe window for me. Um, and offensively, as much as I as much as I want to say it, I keep coming back to as much as I want to predict a Baylor blowout. I have to come back and be honest and say, until I see them play against a top five defensive line and play well, I can't predict that they're going to do that. And so I, I'm, I think in my final score right now is probably like Iowa State 23, Baylor 17. And if, 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 if they're able to hit a few big shots and that opens up, or if Brock Purdy throws a pick six and we get seven points out of that, like that's obviously going to change pretty rapidly. I think the turnover momentum is going to really matter, like when that's going to turnovers are going to happen in this game. But Baylor has shown that they love to put the ball on the ground through three games, so you know I, I think we should expect at least one or two of those from Baylor. So I, right now I'm kind of leaning. If you took out all the turnovers, probably like a 23 to 17, 23 to 19 game. Um, and then from that point on, it's going to be kind of turnovers that determine the rest of it. Or I could be totally wrong, and the offensive line is really like this. <laughs> well, uh, what I like to say last year is when I was criticizing the team, is like, look, you know I'm honest because I'm a fan, but I'm saying things are going poorly. So that's the thing about if y'all are meeting Jeff for the first time tonight, 
or whenever you're listening to this, is he might be, you know, quote unquote, predicting a loss. But you know that in the future he'll give you some honest analysis. So that's always good, right? But Jeff, thanks for doing this. I hope uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this. I know that we probably went deeper than many of you um, desired, but I know there's a few freaks out there that are just like <laughs> us that enjoy this kind of stuff. So Jeff, appreciate it a lot. Uh, thanks for your time. Right